Would you join me this morning in the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon? The Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And we will read again as our text today, verses 1 through 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Word of the Lord, the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your oils have a pleasing fragrance, your name is like purified oil, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Amen. You may be seated. I've given title to this morning's exposition a pictured Union. That's what I draw from this metaphorical language in which the writer uses to describe a love affair, uh, should I say a deeply embedded love between uh, i.e. Solomon and i.e. the Shunammite woman, one that is deeply embedded in the spirit and one that seems to have required and has allowed itself to engage in extensive investment and an extensive interaction between two and the discovery of the interdependency between the two as well, a pictured union. When C.S. Lewis published his book entitled The Four Loves in 1958, he received much criticism here in the U.S. because of his frankfulness and his boldness in the book about the subject of sex. He went on to describe in his own writing and providing for us a rather qualitative exposition of what he called need love, gift love, and appreciation love falling under the banner of the four Greek words that are used in the New Testament to describe love. The first being storge, which you rarely see, but it's used periodically here in the New Testament. It's really more about the expression of a, of a, a deep appreciation kind of love from one person to the other. He talks about the word phileo or philia, as some pronounce it, which is more of a friendship love. He talks about eros, which is the interaction love between two people. And of course, agape, which he borrows from the Gospel of John to exhort the theme that God is love. And in uh, Lewis's exposition, he was really simply trying to raise a conversation about a subject matter that at that time and arguably is somewhat still taboo in the church, 
the subject of sex in terms of discussion, and it was a bold move for him to publish a book under the banner of being a Christian and then discuss a topic which is so sensitive to the ears of people. Now, mind you, none of us would be here without the action of sex, but yet it's a topic we don't like to talk about in church. And yet when it happens, and when it happens outside of a context we think it should have taken place, we have a whole lot to say about the subject then. But Lewis was merely raising our consciousness that we needed to have a conversation about this vital expression of being human because the longer we stay in a vacuum, the more troubling a definition becomes of why and how do we enter into the aspect of that level of love. And so Lewis did something that no one else was willing to do in the late 50s. But thankfully before Lewis, the Song of Solomon is that one book that gets our head out of heaven and it gets our relationships out of heaven and it brings us back down here to earth where we can really deal with the sensitive subject of being physical, of being emotional, and being natural in our human expression. Uh, I always try to encourage parents, whatever you do, please don't leave your children in the closet about the subject of sex. It is best if you, if you have a premise to which you desire to work and you have a particularity to which you want your children to know, it is best that you convey that because I'm here to tell you, if you don't tell them, there are plenty of venues that will give them definition of what they believe sex is and sexuality. And I'm just a believer that if there's the one place that we need to talk about it, it needs to be talked about in the church, from the pulpit, by the pastor, to the congregants, so that the congregation is not shocked when something happens in relation to sex. And let me be a little bit more specific. So that if one of our members, teenage or whomever, young ladies come up pregnant, remember old school, we always scold the young lady and left the young man pretty much free, not remembering it took two to tango and she didn't get pregnant by herself she didn't get pregnant by looking at sex. She didn't get pregnant by looking at a book. She didn't get pregnant by just simply thinking about it in her mind. There was an engagement between two human bodies and that one other subject, in fact, it cannot happen without he providing the seed. We leave that unattached. Why, I don't know, but he needs just as much attention as she needs. In fact, I'd like to argue that we should get away from, and I hope we've drifted away from at least this idea of ostracizing and scolding people because they become impregnated outside of marriage. Get over it. It happens. Get over it. It's a reality. In fact, I would love to see a poll that tells us how many children are actually born in marriage as opposed to are born outside of marriage. I'm here to tell you, when you get two human beings together and they have a natural reaction of touching and kissing and feeling, something gonna happen. 
And you can hide your head in the sand all you want, but just be careful that's not your daughter or your granddaughter or your son or your grandson and they come home and tell you, I got something I need to tell you. Or they don't tell you at all until you just notice about five months later she's gained weight and about five months later uh, she's a little different in her mind and things start to change. Then you come, and if you old school, this is old school, this is not for, for us young or newly technologically advanced, this is old school. If you just look at that throat, y'all know about that, that's old school. You gotta know how to look at the throat and you can tell if a woman is pregnant by the throat because of, that's the way God created. There's a double pulse beat right there in the throat and you know what's going on right there and she ain't got to see your stomach rise at all. She can look at that throat and tell you, no, you ain't fooling me, baby. I know exactly what's going on. That's all Lewis did was raise the subject, raise the topic. And unfortunately, if there had been a black church, you know everybody would have just scrunged all up and just turned their head and been saying to mind, why is the pastor talking about that? That's something reserved from home until they come to church. And when they come to church, we, we, we gonna point out now, those of us who don't have any guts and don't have any integrity or not honest, we're going to talk about them behind their back. We're going to pretend that we love their parents and at the same time, we're going to talk about how that child got pregnant. You ain't got to say amen. I know I'm down. I, look, when I was preparing this, I had already knew I wasn't going to get no amens this morning and I'm well prepared with that. I'm good with that because I know I'm down the street of truth. And when I'm on the street of truth, I got one amen that, all, that really all the one that counts, and that's the one in glory. Tell it like it is. Not realizing that if you think that's a mistake, and I don't think any pregnancy is a mistake, because you got one or two choices. You either plan to have children or you plan to not have children. That's not hard, church. Just figure it out. Let's, let, let, do I need to break it down a little before you? You either plan to have children. That means you take no steps at all to prevent yourself from having children. That means, grandmama, old school, if you keep fishing in the pond, I mean, I got enough common sense to know you just keep throwing that rod out there at some point in time. You're going to catch something. Something's going to bite on that hook. Or you make preparations not to have children, i.e. contraception or i.e. abstinence. Them the only two choices you got. That's it. Lewis was simply raising that in his book, The Four Loves that we need to have an honest conversation about the topic. Now, if you come from old school, you know old school, we didn't talk about that, that stuff that you only talked about at home, and then when you talked about it at home, it was very limited, very limited. And yet, the practice still produced what it always produced, children. And all I'm trying to do is get you to understand the Song of Solomon is an interesting text that doesn't allow us to leave the subject of, of sex in heaven. 
is right down here on earth. I don't know if you know it now, but they're not having sex in heaven. Ain't, ain't nothing going on in heaven. Not, not in that realm. There's no need to reproduce in heaven. It's right here where you and I live. And this is where the writer of the Song of Solomon gives us insight to sort of challenge us not to be so close-minded on the subject, but to be willing to have conversations about the subject because it's a reality of being human. And the less you say, the more risk the inexperience will take. And as I said before, if you prefer that they learn from you, it's best for you to plan to have that conversation. If not, in school they have that conversation. On the playground they have that conversation. Behind closed doors they have that conversation. And they will ascertain information from their friends who have already taken the plunge. And they will get all the information they need. And then they will be forced to decide, do I risk or do I go back and talk to mom and dad about all the information I just acquired? Okay, so y'all kind of quiet. So I'm going to move on from that, but I thought I had to lay that groundwork for you so you'd have an idea. So Lewis took this risque posture, but yet in the pages of that book, he sort of addresses what's an obvious need for conversation in the 21st century, particularly in the context of Christianity. So when we discuss the meaning of falling in love, that's a powerful phrase, falling in love. I'm not talking about falling in love with Jesus. I'm talking about falling in love with another human being. Remember I said previously we got to get the conversation out of heaven into earth where we exist and as people grow singlehood they begin to look for those to whom they may partner by way of mate falling in love. What do we mean by falling in love? Says Lewis once again helps us when we look at that phrase Lewis says, we're talking about the event of falling in love is one high bound in its overleap of the massive wall of selfhood, the massive wall of our self-good, and the leap has made itself appetite, tossed personal happiness aside as triviality, and planted the interests of another right at the center of our being. Now, be before those of you who are super spiritual contend that Jesus has got to be the center of your life, we got that. But once again, when the hormones kick in and when the eyes make contact with the person to whom it finds attractive, it's not Jesus. It's the person. And Lewis says, when we get to that point, that our feelings are actually pushed aside 
because we believe we found someone who may be able to occupy the center of our being. Now, the word being that Lewis uses, I'm convinced, is not a word to which we would use to express the essence of who we are, but to express the coexistence to which we desire. So I want someone in this space. I want someone who can be comparative with me. I want someone who will love me. Someone, as I talked about last Sunday, who would be reciprocal and respectful and responsible. I want that person. And Lewis says, when they find that person, your own feelings leap over selfhood and leaps over self-goodness, not pushing Jesus to the background. In fact, I will contend that's actually God coming to the foreground. And let me further say that we always think that when we talk about being in relation, we're talking about procreation. We misunderstand in the Western world what the, what the theme procreation is all about. Procreation doesn't always mean actually creating human beings from the seed. It actually may also mean having contribution to the life of another person to help them create who they were intended to be. Bringing out of them what lies within them so that the seed that's there can be nurtured by your love and nurtured by your care and nurtured by your attention and nurtured by your encouragement. That's what procreation means. It's called procreation because that which is within you is already created. But when we move from person to person, doesn't have to be a deep relation, but relation period. That's what friendship is all about. Being able to contribute into someone's life that that friend may become all that they were intended to be. And that person in return reciprocates the same kind of love that you become all that you were meant to be. So please get out of your mind the Western concept when we think about procreation always has to do with sex and having children. It doesn't. It's about developing life bringing out life. That's the danger that many commentators had when they started to interpret the Song of Solomon. They thought it always meant literally erotic language that had to meant that we were engaging in actual sexuality. Now there are some parts in here that's pretty detailed and pretty specific, but we're gonna notice at least very quickly this morning that we're not talking always about literal but metaphorical. In fact, the author paints a picture. That's why I call it a pictured union because he uses his imagination. And this is why imagination is so powerful. When you can think and see in your mind, and maybe that's the challenge I'm trying to get young men and women and others to see, particularly if you're single, rather than just fall into someone's trap, think about who you want to be with. Imagine in your mind what kind of man or woman you'd like to have and get past, as I said before, the physicality. I realize the physicality is important, but once you get past that, what's left? So we're talking about something more deep than sexuality. We're talking about identity. We're talking about self-concept. And here it is right here, Lewis says. It jumps over and puts you, or puts the other person at the center of your being. You care about them 
more than yourself in the sense of you're not selfish. And I know that's true because once you get married, that has to go out the window, says Paul in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as yourself. And then he broadens it, which includes both those who are married as well as those who are single, even as Christ has loved his church. So the metaphorical language of verses 1 through 4 the recipient, she, is responding, acting out, conveying, voicing, testifying what it means to have a pictured union and what it means to be in love and to be engulfed and to be captivated and saturated in someone else's psyche and being. That's powerful stuff. Here it is, for those of you who, who really, uh, you either have, and I hope everybody in this room at some point in time either has been in love, you are in love, and I hope you plan on being in love if you haven't been. It's an exciting thing. Good God of mine, I thought I would have got a little bit more amen on that one. <laughs> it's a happy thing. I mean, I would think that it's exciting knowing that someone is waiting for your phone call. Someone is waiting to see you. Someone goes out and they go shopping just for you. Someone wants to spoil you. Someone wants to make you the center of their attention. So whatever they do is always you in mind. When they see something, they're like, I wonder what he or she would think about that. That's something I think they might would want. They would enjoy that. It's always someone thinking about you. They're always trying to find out how's your day. How, how have you been? How's things going with you? How do you feel? What can I do for you? And right here in verses 1 through 4, here is a recipient of that kind of love that has her at the center. Remember, I told you last Sunday, here it is, a, a young girl, a Shunammite woman, who is probably a maiden among many in the harem of Solomon. And yet, of all the ladies, Solomon picks this particular one to voice and to convey what the king has in store for a special individual. That's why I say it's, it's good, it's exciting to be loved by somebody and to be the center of someone's attention. Here it is in metaphorical language. She's boasting. Not in the sense about a love or a power that either seeks to be above her or to place her beneath it, but she's boasting about a love that makes her equal to it, that recognizes that uh, it's a love expressed that's not restricted, it's a love expressed that doesn't diminish, that doesn't limit, that doesn't bind, 
but it's a kind of love care that flourishes and releases her to be all that she was intended to be. And she feels special because of all of the girls that Solomon could have had, he picks her. And husbands, if you got husbands, or, or guys, if you got a special significant other, you ought to make her feel as if there's nobody else in the world but her. God, man, I thought all the women would stand up and say amen on that. I mean, don't you want to be the center women? Remember, we're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about mutual, personal, emotional affection. And so when we roll up someplace, I still do old school thing. I still get out and go open my wife's door. Let her out. We go back to the car. I'll still open the door for her. Let her in. I do that for two reasons. One, I don't want her to get her hand caught in the door. Anything happen, because then she's going to look at me and wonder how come you wasn't over here in the first place. But secondly, it's, it's just an etiquette thing to do. And I not only do it for my wife, but I do it for anyone else. I said, who may be trying to get into a car and find it difficult. I'll do the same thing. But with a bit of chivalry. So when I'm opening the door for a woman, I will not look at her while she's entering, lest something happen to her skirt. And she think I'm trying to look at her legs. I look in the opposite direction. Because somebody will say, the reverend was looking at my leg while he was helping me open the door. No. I got enough leg and Barbara. I don't need any more other leg to look at. She got plenty of leg for me. That's all I need. She got plenty of them. Two of them to be exact. That's, that's all I need. But we should make her, you should make her the center. When you walk out into the public holding her hand, make her feel like there's no other girl in the whole entire vicinity. Make her feel like she's so special that your whole world at that moment is around her. Now let me take it to a deeper level because I just know you're going to freak out now. Because if you look at verse 1, listen to uh, verse 2. Listen to what the text says. In verse 2 it says that, and here's an interesting thing. Here's an interesting thing about this text. In verses 1 through 4, uh, you get the hint if you look deeply that it's more than one person speaking. It's not just the woman who's the recipient of the king's expression. But if you look down at verse 4, it seems as if in the closing of verse 4, there is the whole harem who's recognizing how good of a man he is. And, and there's, there's nothing, nothing more exciting than to have that significant special one beside you and everybody else see it. And there's a sense of awe in his presence and recognition in theirs that this guy, this woman, is the center of that person's expression. But watch the metaphorical language. Look at verse, one, look at verse 2. The first line of verse 2 says that may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, I, I don't think that's personally happening at the moment. I think... 
And I think it's in her mind because perhaps the moment has engaged to a point where she wants to reminisce what's previously happened. I'm going to get a little deep now, so y'all hold on to your seatbelt. Buckle it up real good. Talking about expression, but watch this. Talking about also expressing by way of being appreciative and by way of valuing the other person that I say I'm attracted to and there's beginning to be a love factor flourishing between us. I'm plowing the ground and I have plowed the ground where, as the king did, uh, a previous kiss and kisses in the ancient time was a serious thing. I mean, we kiss now casually. Some of us do. Um, it's a casual thing. But here's what I found fascinating. Uh, I found that there was a story um, was a story, I think it was a survey I read, where it says that in Germany, that they found that if a man kisses his wife in the morning before he leaves to go to work, he lives five years longer. So, bro, that's tip number one for five more years. Now, now, now the question becomes, do you want to kiss her? It says that he lives five years longer, watch this, and has 50% fewer illnesses and makes, <laughs> and makes 20 to 30% more money than the man who doesn't. Sorry to me, we ought to have a kissing fest going up on here, bro. I mean... I'm talking about kissing. Now, in the ancient world, the expression of a kiss was deep because one knew that if you engaged with a kiss, particularly from mouth to mouth, then that, had, that was taboo unless there was some love expression. If there was a love, now, we, we might, again, we talk about young people exploring. They're going to explore. When you let your son or your daughter go out on their first date, you, you can almost, I'd say 50-50, it's going to happen. You might want to prepare them at what it, what it means to give a kiss or what may transpire through the kiss. You might want to tell them that because if they experience it on their own, that kiss will become a kiss will become a kiss, will become a kiss, and the kissing from lip to lip will engage the hugging from shoulder to shoulder. And that same kiss is still going on. And don't act like you don't know what's going to happen if that keeps going on and going on and going, why y'all trying to act like y'all ain't that religious, trust me. I know you ain't that religious. In fact, that might be some of your problem. Maybe your husband need to kiss you a little more often. Maybe your wife need to hug you and hold you and kiss you a little more often. You, you know what they say? Whenever a couple begins to drift away, what's the first thing they stop doing? Kissing. 
Isn't that something? The first, and this sister says, may his kisses, may he kiss me with the kisses, plural, of his mouth. In her mind, imagination. I said all that to say, brothers, we should set in minds of our significant other what it means to be loved by me. You should set that in motion so that that imagination begins to engage in a respectful manner. I know, I know that she's talking about him because look at clause B of verse 2. She says it because your love is better than wine. Now she's expanded what she's talking about. So what we got here is an interesting thing. She's, she's actually telling us about the physical pleasure of being with the king. There it is. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you. There it is right there. The sense of touch and the sense of taste came together resulting in a passion that was more than what she could handle. And that's what you got to tell young men and women. This is what will happen if you play with fire, it will burn you. Your love is more delightful than wine. That's what she says. Describing that romantic, affectionate kiss in a way that she's saying, I found the touch of your lips and the embrace of your mouth sweet, powerful, and intoxicating. See, that's deep to me. That's the way I want to leave Barbara every single day. Through the course of the day, I want her mind to be wondering, when is 6 o'clock going to come so I can get home and see my James? <laughs> if, if you don't adopt that kind of mentality, eventually you'll drift away. And check this out. Someone else will replace that imagination. If you are single now, you might want to check all these things out. And if you are married, you might want to recheck them again because relationship is work. It's hard work. Uh, when you get someone who will deal with you when you're up and when you're down and when you're good and when you're not and when you're feeling well and when you're not feeling well and when you got an attitude when you don't have an attitude and they stick it out with you, that's a lot of work. And you do the same for that individual. And the expression of a kiss is powerful. Um, I'm not going to finish this. I'm going to give you this final point. There's, there's the show you how imaginative I believe God is. God uses this kind of picturesque effort when he describes his relationship with Israel repeatedly. And I found one in Ezekiel chapter 16 that I thought was incredibly powerful where God instructs the prophet to remind Israel of how he found her and yet how he expressed his love to her or how God expresses God's love to Israel and how it provides for us the very picturish union that should exist between ourselves and the other in a very reciprocal manner. L listen to what God tells the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 16. 
beginning at verse, at verse 4. And some of it I'm going to have to explain to you as we move along. He says, uh, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Now, you, you, you have to cut the navel cord at some point in time that that child might begin to receive oxygen and live on its own. Now, watch this metaphor. Look, uh, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothing. So, so you were not purified, nor were you sanitized, nor were you prepared. You know, when you have a baby, the nurse is there and wipe the baby clean of the afterbirth and all that good stuff. None of that happened, says God, when I found you. Now watch this, verse 5. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you. Talk about nurturing. Talk about finding a person who, who is broken. Watch this, who is broken, and yet uh, you met a person who needs a reassurance and who needs to be in a relationship where they can be assured that their dignity is intact, but yet their heart has been broken. The challenge is, can you handle someone that may take longer than someone else to come along with you? And look what this text says. And God says, when I, when I found you, no one looked at you with pity with those eyes to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out in the open field. For you were abhorred on the day you were born. So in other words, the suggestion is you come out of a background where you didn't even have parental or maternal love. And this is where I found you in a field of nothingness. Look at verse 6. When I passed by, passed by you and saw you squirming in your own blood, that means that where you were, you were so broken and wounded that you were actually there in your own blood. Look at the text. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Notice it says it twice. Because sometimes in relationships, some people seem to think that, uh, particularly when we talk about female to male, that you're coming to just get something. When you may be engaged or you may be interacting with a person who's coming not to get, but to restore, to put something back in you that was lost because someone else took it from you and when they found you they found you squirming left in your own blood wounded look at what verse 7 says I made you numerous I made you numerous like plants of the field then you grew up became tall and reached the age for the fine ornaments uh, look, at, look at what it says I nurtured you I hung out with you, I cried with you, I labored with you. I did everything that was needed to help grow you. Uh, here's something interesting, it's not in the text, but it's inferred to me. This is, this is for young people, if you're single, you might wanna bring the significant other around family members. You, you might wanna let some other folk, your friends, check them out. Uh, once again, old school. I'm old school like this. I, you know, 
It's just my way. But listen, uh, I, I advocate bringing around, your, bringing around your mother and your daddy, your grandma and your grandma. They can kind of look at people. And then later on, mm-mm, baby, mm-mm. <laughs> grandma don't feel good about him. Mm-mm. No, mama don't, mama, mama, mama don't get a good feeling about her baby. Now, we are infatuated with who they are, A, physically, and then there may be a few characteristics. But there's something about wisdom that they see underneath what we don't see on the surface. They may save you a heartache. Young people find it hard to believe because they kind of figure like, you know, I'm intelligent, I can make this decision. But there are just some things about character and personality. If we've lived for years, we've seen you've only been here 13 years. We, we kind of been in several relationships before we settled down in this one, and we kind of seen a lot of stuff. In fact, we've been hurt several times. We kind of know the signs that this might not be a good thing. So you might want to let them check them out. Check them out, say, yeah, you know, I'm just going to invite them to dinner, and I'm going to get up and leave for about 20 minutes just to give you a chance to check them out. See what you see. What I don't see because I'm so fascinated about who they are physically. Ask some questions that I may not want to ask. It's good to let some other folk check them out. Here it is. He said, I grew you up. Now, now watch it now. Watch it now. Uh, because it's going to get a little funny here. So... Be careful in verse 7. He's going to say some stuff that's going to mess with your religion. But remember what I said, metaphorical. Look what he says. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments, which means you were ready to advance to the greater provision that I have. Then it says, your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were bare and naked. Metaphor. He's painting the picture in your mind. This is God. Watch it. This is God. Painting the picture that you might see in the female image, the picture of a woman who has grown to maturity, and yet she's bare. Her body parts have grown to essence, and the natural eyesight of a man, you know he's freaking out. He's going crazy. His hormones are starting to run. Good God from Zion. But watch what God says. Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were at time for love. Because in relationships, you have to grow people to the time of love. You can't meet somebody and then 24 hours later you're in love. I, that's, I find that hard to believe. You don't know them. You don't know their history. They could be serial killers. They could be rapists. They could be extortioners. You don't, how are you going to say you're in love in 24 hours? You don't know about their family. You don't know where he came from, where she came from. She could be a, a, a black widow. You don't have no clue. It takes time to grow to love because there's a lot you have to find out about the other person and then there's a lot you have to be willing to risk that they may come to know about you. 
So look what he says. When you were at that time for love, I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. That means where he or she was insufficient. In this text, where she was insufficient, he covered her. Uh, young people use the phrase, uh, I held you down. That you hip hoppers, if you don't, those of us, if you don't know hip hop, you won't know that phrase. I held you down. I'm holding you down. I got your back. You got that one? That, that's that's hip hop language. That. Got your back. Old school, I'm there for you. I'm supporting you. I'm helping you out. You don't do that overnight. That's, that's growth. That's love. That's, that's growth in love. You'll ride or die. That's another hip-hop colloquium. Ride or die. You are stuck, and not in a bad way, you are stuck to that person. That person is you, and you are that person. That's what he meant when he says, I spread my covering to cover your nakedness, and I also swore to you and entered into a covenant. I married you. And look at that. I married, I made a covenant with you so that you became mine's, declared the Lord. That's why I said last Sunday, if you're in a relationship and it ain't going nowhere, you, you want to get out of that. Got to be going somewhere. Because if you're going to spend five, ten years with someone just talking, you're wasting five, ten years. And the last that I checked, you are not getting younger. We're getting older. That means that that's 10 years behind you, not 10 more years before you. You just lost 10 years. If you're going to lose your time, lose it with someone that's giving life to you. So she says, she says that your love is better than fine wine. She says, the passionate kiss you gave blows my mind. And then she says in verse three, uh, she tells us uh, in verse two, her desires of the physical pleasure of marriage. And then she tells us in verse three, the desires of the personal pleasures of marriage. She says, the love your oils have a pleasing fragrance and your oil is like purifying oil. Your love is like purifying oil. And if you look closely and examine what she's saying, there's a connection to the mind, to the will, and to the emotion. That's why love is a risky thing because you put your everything out there. Not only does love connect our intellects and our desires, but it keeps its own proper balance. Love is to be a delightful experience that expresses itself in many ways. It's a physical dimension, but then it's not just physical because the song gives us four different avenues by whereby the lover. See, the lady in the text, the lady says that, that this king is her leader and her lover and her laborer. As her lover, look what it says. Uh, she delights in his fragrance. See that in verse 3? Your oils 
have a pleasing fragrance. And here's what that means. And then I'm done. Here's what that means, brother. That means that Brother Man came prepared at the top of his game. That meant that he washed his mouth out real good after brushing his teeth. That meant that he took a bath and that meant that he put on the best cologne that he could find. That meant that he was smelling good. That meant that his stuff was pressed. His garments were in line. That meant that he was up to date. It wasn't 2018, he still dressed in 1974. Nope, he was up to date. That means that he had his hair trimmed. Got nothing against y'all who do the natural thing, but that means he had it look, if he did the natural thing, he had it looking good. Got nothing against you, you want to do natural. That's, that's all up to you. You do your natural thing, but make it look good. That meant that he was clean. Look, look what it says. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. That means you smell good. And I'm just here to tell you, a sister don't want a bad-smelling man in her presence. You can't be all up in here talking about something. Yeah, so what's your name? Breath just, oh, just all out of whack. You ain't brushed your teeth who knows when. You ain't seen a dentist in who knows how many years. Get your stuff right, man. Oral hygiene. Take a bath. You don't work all day. Don't, don't go to the gym, work out, then say you're going to meet your girl. Uh-uh. Use the shower at the gym. Change your clothes. Get yourself together. Smell good. She can smell your mouth. Oh, that's, that smell like my baby right there. Oh, yeah, there he is. That, that's what you want. And she ain't giving you nothing and you smelling like who knows. As my grandmama say, a pole cat. I don't know what a pole cat is, but that's what she'd always say. Get out of here smelling like a pole cat. I don't, if somebody know what a pole cat is, please tell me. I have no clue what a pole cat is. Oh, a skunk. Oh, well that. And you know how bad a skunk smells. If there it is right there in verse 3. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. He took a bath. He used soap. Once again, I'm not against y'all who want to be natural. But I'm just here to tell you. Ivory snow, ivory soap, dove, dial. Use one of them. As my mama say, hit the major spots. Because chances are, those are the spots <laughs> that's going to let somebody know we haven't seen a bath cloth, water, or soap in a long time. Because human beings respond to the touch, to the taste, and to the smell. When it comes together, it comes together in pursuit of romance and love. And here was a man 
who was sensitive to the things that his woman found attractive. So that's the reason why uh, if you're going to be involved with someone, you need to find out what is it that they are attracted to. Now, there, there may be a cologne that may be allergenic to the other person. You got to find that out. Or there may be a smell that she does not like. You got to find that out. Some colognes for men are woodsy. Others are a little bit more sweet. You got to find out what is it that she really likes. And this is just a little tip. Don't be cheap. Buy some good stuff. You know what I mean? Don't buy the good stuff, man. Go into Macy's and, and go into Neiman Marcus and walk around and test that stuff. There's a lady or a guy back there who's generally a professional at this thing. Ask them. Make sure it works with your body chemistry. Because you're trying to impress. That's what he did to this one. He impressed her so that, that she says, man, your, your, your smell is so good. It's intoxicating. And when I read that image in Ezekiel 16, that was God's way of saying to Israel, when I found you, you had none of that. And if I read the text a little further, you will see where God says, I adorned you with the finest of shoes and the finest of clothes and the finest of jewelry and the finest of wine and the finest of culinary expression. I gave it all to you because I loved you that much. That simply says us brothers, don't be cheap. If you're going to invest in someone that you love, do so with class. Now, I'm only going to ride that point for about one more second. Then I'm going to let it go because I see in the eyes of some people, what does that mean? That means, brothers, listen, if you have to save, save, and save, and save to a point where you can do it big. Even if you don't do it one time a year, do it right. She'll love you more for doing it right because I don't think any woman, look, women want a man who plans. A woman doesn't want to have to think of everything. Where are we going? I don't know. You tell me where we going. Where are we going out for dinner? You, how about you tell me where we going? Have you got that plan yet? Why do I have to think of that? Where are we going to shop? I don't know. You tell me. Plan. Let her know you are her leader. Get in control. That doesn't mean control in the sense of being negativity. It means I'm thinking ahead, baby. I want to make sure you have a wonderful day, a wonderful experience. It's intoxicating so that when I leave you, you want to come back again and again and again. There it is right here in this day. And that's the way God told Israel, I loved you so much like that, that I gave you the best of all that you could ever need. And that's the way, when we talk about being relational, you got to be willing to put in the work to get to that kind of status. God did that when he gave us the best that he had to give in himself in the person of Jesus. He gave us all that we might experience, all that we need and be covered in our nakedness where he found us at in the midst of our blood, which led us to be guilty of that which causes us to stand judgment before him. Yet Jesus covered it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
Sin had left its crimson stain, but he washed it and made it white as snow. When I spoke of sometimes people come in your life to restore, it's to restore, to wash away the pain that someone had previously left. Once again, we're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about being in relation with other people. Because in the midnight hour, when someone starts playing silk, oh, y'all don't, y'all don't know silk. High five. Y'all don't know high five. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going too old school on you. Uh, how about little Usher? Little Luther, Eric Benet. My point is, when that stuff starts to work in your mind about one o'clock in the morning and you sitting there with your glass of wine just looking at the wall, it ain't Jesus you thinking about. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the word.